I'd like to invite you on a walk. For the longest time, I lived primarily by paying attention to words. Maybe this was the niche I felt safest in and simultaneously most accomplished and rewarded in because there was something about the study of the Bible that had a special place in the community that I grew up in. So words were simultaneously allotted there just as I found ways to learn about the rest of the world that I was not given direct access to through books and I was also able to use this method as something of an escape at the time to learn about the world around me. So I spent a lot of time in words. And one of the effects of such a thing happening is that you place a lot of importance on what words mean in relation to everything else. As a result, I place the word first, which perhaps reflects something about the Western tradition since in the beginning of the book of John was the word. That combination of Greek philosophy and Semitic desert conviction came together to bring a sort of totalizing view in the world. The strength of the binary, of the knowledge of good and evil, of yes and no, coming in part from the starkness of a desert faith, Judaism, combined with the desire to categorize and argue that came from Greek philosophy. So you put those two things together and you have a worldview that is primarily based on words. Now, the other influence in my life was no doubt the shadow of Hindu thought, 
from which we get the likes of Nagarjuna and possibly the oldest priesthood in existence, which simultaneously places an importance of words, though there's a, a lack of examination with the Hindu tradition in that it is typically accepted that you accept these words as sacred and you repeat them just as they were told to you for generations and generations and generations so that you can have a almost perfectly transferred oral tradition at least perfect in terms of the words themselves that is unbroken for more than 2,000 years in some areas. This is why in India among spiritual leaders or priests uh, when people are developing their meditation practice they go to their teacher, their guru, and their guru gives them a mantra for a specific situation. This kind of mirrors how martial arts is taught a lot now. Uh, if you are someone who learns Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you may notice that you have a situation and you're not sure what to do with that situation or you have something that you're currently working on some part of the game that you are most interested by where your attention is on and in the beginning it might be something as simple as people keep on getting on top of me how do i get them off me or i keep on getting choked uh, from this position how do i avoid that and so you have a predicament and then you go to your black belt your teacher, and he'll probably give you some set of moves to memorize as possible solutions to your problem. The approach in Hindu meditation is similar. You'll probably have some life predicament, some pain, and your teacher will assign you a mantra that is appropriate for you. And you go and say that mantra a hundred times, a thousand times, two thousand times, ten thousand times, however many times that teacher tells you. This is a very different approach to the approach that I suspect is best for learning in a generalizable way. But there is a beauty to it in that through the repetition, you're forced to get tired. And when you get tired, it's very hard to do. And when I say do, I mean like driving uh, a herd. So the, the word uh, act basically comes from a time where to act meant to drive something, to push something, to force something, in the same way that you might herd a group of goats or cattle. So this might give us clues about what the traditions of Taoism might mean when they say things like non-doing 
they mean not forcing. It's not that you don't do anything. It's not that you don't uh, move. It's that you don't force movement. You let yourself be moved. And so repeating a action over and over again or repeating a mantra over and over again makes you tired from all your forcing from all your pushing from all your driving that eventually you give up pushing you give up driving you give up forcing and you let it flow so this might be the moment of release and surrender that a lot of people experience saying mantras all the time or that moment where they finally let themselves give up trying to to force a technique when they're training martial arts and when they just kind of because they're tired give up and let themselves flow so you can see that there would probably be a way to directly access this feeling of flow without having to go through that repetition though you might need the experience of life to transfer over from field to field, from domain to domain to get the benefits of that. In meditation an example might be Zen sitting which works as a contrast to the Hindu method instead of a mantra you're just sitting and you're letting whatever comes come and go you might find an equivalent to this in Dzogchen the Tibetan tradition of Vajrayana Buddhism which has a similar relationship to emptiness with the idea that you can just hit it all the time because everything is empty all the time and enlightenment is simply a fact of existence to think you're not enlightened is an illusion that causes whatever not enlightenment is so in fighting the equivalent is a sort of play where you're given a predicament a constraint say like the constraint of in this situation I want you to control the other person's area between their hips and their armpits and not let them control yours and then letting the players figure out how to do that on their own in novel ways so we have these contrasts but we do have words in writing and we have used them to go get very far and that's because these symbols allow us to transmit parts of information from things learned from other people's play from thousands and thousands of years ago and so we can kind of go back and forth in time through these symbols because it's a sort of freezing a snapshot of a process it's a very very tiny snapshot of a process but it's a snapshot nonetheless which is better than no snapshot um, better than completely losing the memory of what happened 
Yet, sometimes, a little bit of signal is more destructive than noise, or can appear that way for a specific goal that you might have, such as living a full life. And we may find ourselves in a situation where we put a lot of stock in those little clues, which is the situation I definitely found myself in for most of my life. It is also the situation that the author Mishima found himself in before working through that in a way that we can all take in now through his books and ritually committing suicide. But of course, first he dedicated himself to improving his body through weightlifting and such. Which reconnects you to the body that you might distance yourself from when you start to rely on words. Relying on words, many things that would not surprise other people surprise me. And the fundamental surprise there is noticing that people do not do things that would make sense to do if I were to take them at their word. So, as an example, if someone says their life is miserable or that things are upsetting in some way, but then they choose to do whatever they're doing over and over and over again, even as they have many, many options, even as you show them options, then that means that the direction they're moving in has little to do with what they're saying in terms of the content of what they're saying. But the saying, the, the words, matter less than how they're saying it. And how they're saying it is in the same way you might perspire as you are expending a lot of energy in the heat. That is, uh, the words are shed as a flourish uh, in some sort of performance about what they're doing. To cope with where they're moving, they need to release these spirits of doubt, so to speak, of doubt in where they're moving by voicing them out loud. And having said these frozen words, they feel like those spirits that came up with those words, those parts of themselves that came up with those words, that had those thoughts, are temporal, temporarily appeased. This might be part of why you have lots of people bitching and moaning <laughs> as they do their jobs and complaining. It's not that they actually want to stop doing their jobs. It's that the bitching and the complaining is part of the activity of doing their job. It's part of what brings everyone together. And it's part of how their bonds strengthen when you are working some big box retail job and there are smokers and non-smokers. Typically the smokers go outside and I believe the same is, is for uh, 
service jobs as well, basically any working class jobs. And as they're taking their break there, they're typically complaining. And if you're not a part of that, you're not a part of that. And you'll always kind of come in second because it turns out all the career people, um, not that they wanted this as a career, but the people who have ended up with these pads as a career, who are typically the middle management, are in the group that is sitting around on the sidewalk bitching as they're smoking. And obviously they don't want anything to change. They are content with their job and their place in life, but they do feel a little bit of discontent, and to release that discontent, they put words to it, which is very different from a culture in which your words follow your actions, or another culture which might look similar but not the same is a culture where your actions follow your words. A culture in which your actions follow your words is perhaps the kind of culture that I found myself in over time. The uh, rationalist culture that has to do with a heavy influence from the end of liberalism, which is to say analytic philosophy, and programmers, the tech industry in general. These are a culture that have an easier time with selective attention, which means they have an easier time driving themselves, forcing themselves, pushing themselves to have their actions match what they say. And this appealed to me, being a child of words. And so I spent many years, decades, forcing myself, contorting myself into a shape of movement that reflected the words that I said, that reflected the, the, the words that I felt like I should espouse. And when I was young, the major contradiction was noticing that the words in the Bible did not match the way that we were told to move in our church. And it was easy to notice this because the claim to authority that they had was that they were following the Bible more than anyone else. And yet it did not seem to be the case to me that they were following the words there. And so I carried this chip on my shoulder for a long time. It's still sort of there. I'm paying attention to it, letting it work its way out with this. Giving voice to some words, some thoughts, to see if I might switch slowly into a way of being where I let the movement flow first and the words come after to explain what has happened, which is in fact 
how it always goes. The reason for any action always comes after. You don't come up with words for yourself. Words are a fundamentally social phenomenon. If you had grown up alone in the woods, you would have never come up with them. There's no reason to. So every time you are thinking a verbal thought, you're actually being social. Which is one of the reasons why I'm pretty sure that introversion is not a real thing among humans. It is actually a form of fear and shyness and, and uh, shame out of not having space, not feeling like you have space to be yourself around other people. And so we, as introverts, because I have been an introvert, retreat from the world and carry on parasocial relationships. Relationships that are social, but that are not direct. When I'm reading a book, I am always communicating with that author and everyone who's ever read that book. Just not face-to-face, -face, just not in the meat. So, reasons always come after, words always come after. We like to pretend that they don't, because some part of us, the part of us probably, that is running the scam, that is running the magic trick, that is creating things based on that trick, which is a very valuable function, doesn't like the idea that words are not supreme. And coming from a culture, Western culture, that marriage of the Greek and the desert religion, of stark beauty, of extremes in the desert, of yes or no, and nothing in between, and nothing else. Coming from that tradition, it's very appealing to think that words came first, when, in fact, life comes first. And the flow of life, that is movement, comes before that. If we're looking for a before. So, perhaps it's better to simply admit that. And let ourselves flow. And then label the movement after without having to claim that we came up with the words first. Because these words, they're not just mine, it's yours, and it's mine. Oh.